Blog Talk Radio. If I ever do anything right, I want to be so good to this little life. If I Funded show. No part of this program should be construed as medical advice. And now your host, Gina Kirby. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really happy to have you with us. Um, you know, being a parent is the hardest job that you will ever have, and progressive parenting understands this and wants you to know that you are not alone. Hello, my name is Gina Kirby. I am an ex-board member of Attachment Parenting International, Lower Chile International Breastfeeding Peer Counselor, and Doula Trainer, and I'm your host. Although I am not a parenting expert, I am a concerned parent of four children, and as such, I understand the difficulties involved with parenthood. Every week, I invite doctors, nurses, family workers, authors, and experts from different fields to answer your parenting questions. Now, because this is a progressive show... We will broach topics and air opinions that you as a parent might not otherwise hear about through the mainstream media. The mission of Progressive Parenting is to inform, not preach, to share, not advise, and to connect, not alienate. Today's show is brought to you by our listeners as we are listener-funded, and today by two sponsors. We're proud to announce that Bebomia Incorporated is one of our sponsors for today's show. And they're offering this community 20% off of their breastfeeding education certification. Inspired by the World Health Organization's 20-hour breastfeeding course, this online certification prepares you for all the questions you will get as a birth and parenting professional. This training is ideal for prenatal and postpartum fitness experts, doulas, childbirth educators, sleep educators, massage therapists, nurses, and anyone else that is working with expecting a new parent. Head over to www.bebomia, that's B-E-B-O-M-I-A, dot com forward slash breastfeeding. Use the code GINAFRIENDS, that's G-E-N-A-F-R-I-E-N-D-S, all uppercase, and 20% comes off your total. That's super generous, and we're so excited. Thank you, Bebomia. I love everything that you guys do. Um, we also have another sponsor. Our sponsor today is Rebecca Cradle. Uh, the Recessa Cradle is the only resuscitation support board designed for stabilizing the head, neck, and body of a newborn to help ensure an open airway. We're so excited to have both of these sponsors, and I'm so excited to do this show. 
this is such a big deal to everyone. I, uh, I'm so excited about today's show because I've been looking a lot online, as I do. I get, like, I don't know if you guys do this, at Google notifications where you put in, like, what you want to hear about from Google. And so I always want to hear about breastfeeding. And I saw this ad pop up, and um, it was kind of uh, – it, it shocked me because I'm a – a little League International Breastfeeding Care Counselor. I uh, served on the Board of Directors for API, like I said. So I'm kind of big on breastfeeding. Uh, as much as it was a nightmare, like three times in a row, I'm still really big on it. And I saw this ad come up, and it was frightening because it had information in it that wasn't um, – well, I'll tell you what happened. I posted it. I posted it on my Facebook page, this little meme about breastfeeding. And all my friends were like, what the heck, Gina? I thought you were pro-breastfeeding. And that kind of said everything that I needed to know. It was an ad from a group called That Is Best. And the name itself sounds great. But before I get into anything, I want to introduce you to my guest today. I am super excited to have these folks on my show. Um, I can't even tell you what a blessing it is to know amazing people like the ones that I know. I always say that I'm super blessed and that I'm like a millionaire in um, in friends. So I want to go ahead and oh, how do I do this? Sorry, guys. I I know my information and I'm really excited about it, but I'm not always the best with technology. So just hold on one second. I want to introduce you to my panelists. So uh, my panelists today are and as follows: Jennifer Tao. She is a LLC, IBCLC, RLC, OMC, has practiced holistic lactation for 18 years, and through her clinical experience and her diligent research, she specializes in helping dyads with compromised gut health, functional restrictions, and tongue tie. Edith Kunerman is an international board-certified lactation consultant and clinician in Toronto, Canada. She has, was the co-founder and president of the International Breastfeeding Center, co-founder and clinical director of the Newman Breastfeeding Clinic, senior faculty at IBC's Center for Breastfeeding Studies. We're so excited to have her. Ashley Pickett, IBCLC, is an international board certified lactation consultant in private practice. She also works as a part-time staff member at the Newman Breastfeeding Clinic in Toronto. I'm so excited to have them on the show today. So let me go ahead and get them on live. We'll see who this is. Oh, sorry. Jennifer's been an IBCLC for 21 years. I got that wrong. <laughs> I got the, taunt, the date wrong. So I'm going to have everybody come on live. When you guys are all here, make sure to say who you are before you start speaking. And then if you could just push uh, mute in between so we have uh, as little background noise as possible. So who wants to start and say hello? Hi. It's Edith. I'm happy to say hello. Hi. I'm really pleased to be on the show. Hi, Gina. Hi, everyone. And I think that Hi, is Edith. such an important topic. It's a huge topic. Um, even before we get started, when I wrote to you about uh, the topic, what was it the thing the thing that stood out for you the most regarding like being on the program in talking about this particular subject, uh, which is fed as best? I think that it's so important that parents feel that they are well-educated and properly educated. And 
there is a very big difference between giving people information and having people be genuinely informed. And so when we come out with various concepts, philosophies, and thinking around baby feeding, so often much that is not necessarily factual gets caught up into a very um, dramatic kind of presentation of information that will pull on our emotional sort of strings, and that doesn't mean the information's wrong, but it also doesn't mean the information's necessarily right. And so too often we get caught up in that emotional uh, ride around the information, and sometimes the facts get lost. And so I'm all about educating parents, and I do that a lot, and I'll just mention my website at Breastfeeding Inc., that we are all about giving correct information that is as factually correct as we know it, and the research isn't always up to speed. In fact, mostly in areas of medicine it's not, and certainly breastfeeding, it's definitely not. But we want to give correct information. We don't want to blow it out of proportion, and we don't want to lace it with too much emotion because that's going to capture people's um, direction instead of having people focus really on what is the best answer for them. Right. Oh, my gosh. That's perfect. Um, I I would like to start off the show just sharing my stories with everyone. Uh, The first time I had a baby was... 14 years. She just turned 14, so I was pregnant 15 years ago. And right after she was born, I knew I wanted to breastfeed, but I didn't really have a lot of information outside of my desire to breastfeed. And so, like a weekend, I had bleeding nipples. I was crying and shuddering every time they handed the baby to me. They being my mom and my my husband. And uh, it was. I was just like, I give up. You know, there's formula in the cupboard because they sent it to me. Let's just do that. And lucky for me, I had a husband who was really instinctual, and he said, you know, you said you wanted to do this. I want to help you do it. And so he went to the hospital where I gave birth, and he asked them for help. And he went up to the labor and delivery ward, and they sent him to a little meeting, or just sent me because men weren't allowed. And he sat out in the car, God bless him, and waited for me to be done with the meeting. And I learned so much. Oh, my gosh. And I was just dead set on breastfeeding, and I had help, and I had a a mom, a brand-new mom show me on her own breast with her own child how to breastfeed. And if it wasn't for that, I would have given up. And with my second child, she was born with Down syndrome. I was told at the um, NICU not to even bother trying. Uh, Good news was her and my first child breastfed till three and a half years old. My third child, uh, we had a lot of difficulties, but she did make it 18 months. And then my fourth child uh, had serious lip and tongue tie and we're still nursing we're at uh, almost three and a half years now but every single time I can understand why moms would give up or be terrified about the situation and so in sharing those stories I want to make sure that everybody who's listening understands that this show is not about bashing moms who can't breastfeed this is not about that this is not about even uh, bashing the said it is best folks I want to make sure that we get out really good information to parents so that they can make great decisions for themselves. I will tell you, Edith, this last time with Jack, if I didn't know how good it was for me and my body, if I didn't know how good it was for my son, I would have quit at three weeks. It was excruciating mm. and horrible. 
and I needed lots of help, and thank God I had Jennifer Tao, and I could go online and get help from her. But what about parents who don't have the information that they need? How can they be expected to be successful? Uh, would you like me to answer that one? or I'd like anybody to answer that who's online. I have everybody on, so. Just say who you are first before you start talking so people don't get confused. We have a lot of panelists today. Uh, anyone? I, I, I'm, I'm happy to begin the answer, but I think other people have really great um, information to share, so I don't want to monopolize, but I'll, I'll just share really quickly. This is the biggest Thank challenge you, around, and sorry, I'm Edith, and this is the biggest challenge around breastfeeding, and that is that it's not the norm in many societies of Western culture. We don't tend to see it around us, so many people don't even have experience. Thank goodness you had a mother next to you who was able to show you with your first. That changed everything for you. And the challenge here is that too many women are breastfeeding in isolation, so they can't get that information. We have failed as a society where we push breast is breast, breast is best all the time, and we don't support it with proper information and education for parents. So we need to get out the correct information so parents can make the same decision you did. But secondly, the challenge is if we give moms information but we don't literally walk them through the how-tos, that's going to be very difficult and they're going to end up feeding in pain and they shouldn't have to. Breastfeeding should never hurt. So congratulations to you that you breastfed for so long. That's awesome. I'm so glad you were able to get the help from an amazing person like Jennifer. It's, um, we've got to find a way for all moms to be able to access that. And I'm, I'm going to stop now because too many. there are other people who have better things to say, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> so humble. Jen, uh, Jen, I know you're there. Did you want to pop in? Yeah, this is, since you're familiar yeah with this is Jennifer. Are you able to hear me? Yeah, perfect. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to be here with Gina again. It's been a while. Um, I just want to pick up from what Edith, Edith just commented on, because I think for a lot of us, um, our own personal experiences are really pretty significant in the way that we approach either our support for other mothers or our work with mothers. And like Gina, you know, for me, seeing another mother breastfeed, seeing breastfeeding as normal was really significant in terms of my ability to overcome breastfeeding issues myself. And when I started to work with other mothers as a La Leche League leader, one of the things I saw in my naivete at that time was that education was really the key and that people simply didn't know this. I know I didn't know it, that people just didn't know the information. And so I started volunteering with WIC, and we were doing luncheons once a month and educating mothers, and we were having, you know, 30 mothers. I mean, a lot of mothers were coming to these, these luncheons, and we were offering, you know, education and, and food, which is <laughs> a nice combination. But I started, they were coming back, the moms would come back like six weeks after having their babies, already having quick breastfeeding. And I started to feel like I was really setting them up because I was giving them this education, but no support. They didn't have support in their families. They didn't have support in the institution. They didn't have support at WIC at that time, other than the sort of conceptual support. But there wasn't a lot of, like, there were no peer counselors, for example. And so I actually quit my real job <laughs> where I was making money and I wrote a grant and started the breastfeeding peer counseling program at Hartford Hospital 
and we embedded the program into the hospital clinic so that we saw our mothers every single day in the hospital. So when they gave birth, we saw them. We saw them before they gave birth. We saw them after they gave birth. And we went from an average age of weaning of two of six weeks to four months within less than a year. And it was, it was really, I realized it wasn't the education. Much as that was important and we did that, it was really having that connection to other mothers. And like you said, Gina, like, you know, you, you, you continue through challenges because there's someone else by your side. And as Edith mentioned, we've yeah. taken that away in our Western culture. Yeah, that that's the hardest thing, too, is that, I mean, I was really lucky to have somebody alive and next to me and show me in, really, in real life what that looked like. And it, it meant everything to me. And it, it made such a big difference. And then knowing how important breastfeeding was. So think about how privileged I am. Uh, to have found out what Lola Jalik was, to found other women who are actually breastfeeding, you know, 15 years ago, and and to be supported by that and buoyed with my knowledge. Now look at everybody else in the world, or at least in the United States, who doesn't have that, um, you know, that, that village of people around them supporting them. It can be really hard. And that I want to bring it back to the that is best business because. Um, I want to talk about what that looks like. So for people who are listening who don't understand who they are, um, the Set of Best Foundation uh, on their website say that they believe babies should never go hungry and mothers should be supported in choosing clinically safe feeding options for their babies, whether breast milk formula or a combination of both. Now that sounds really fantastic. My... uh, wanting to do the show today is about some of the tactics and some of the information that gets disseminated from that is best that can be a little troubling in that you're a brand new mom, you're breastfeeding your child, and this group is telling you you need to be super careful about not killing your baby with your breast milk. Now, that's a really scary thing to hear as a brand new mom, and I'd like to talk about that with you guys. And I'm trying so hard I want to be a good person. I want to be nice. <laughs> so that's there's my intention. So how do we talk about this in a way that can help parents the most and get them great information? Like what is it that um, – I'm hoping you understand where I'm trying to get at. Like some of this information, just the wording of that uh, is saying that babies should never go hungry. Doesn't, isn't that in and of itself kind of frightening for new parents? Do you hear that, like, if you're breastfeeding, your your child might go hungry? Anybody, jump in, whoever wants to. It's okay. Uh, this, is, this, is Gen- this is Jennifer again. Um, one of the things that I feel like happens with this, and I want to bring up the breast is best first, because that, that the problem is there's really a straw man here, because we're arguing in this, or, in this organization, their argument is against breast is best, except that breast isn't best. So there's an Mm -hmm. argument against something that isn't a legitimate um, foundation anyway. Back when I was telling you about the the peer counseling program is when the whole uh, Breast is Best initiative began, and they tried to introduce it to Hartford Hospital, but my background was in marketing and advertising, and I knew what was happening. That That was a marketing strategy from the formula companies, and I knew it. But lactation people jumped on it and embraced it and used it and ran with it, and it was very 
very destructive to the lactation to the world of lactation and ultimately people backed off and pushed it back away and said wait a minute wait a minute nobody lives a best life i mean we just don't we live the best life we can but we don't live that perfect exemplary life and when you say something is best it implies it's the unreachable it's the un, you know it's the thing that the very rare people have and it's not a helpful kind okay, of conversation yeah. So when we, as in the lactation community, kind of, you know, sort of stepped back and said, no, 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 breast is simply normal. It just is. Like, breathing just is. It's not something best. And we've been saying that, I mean, 20 years ago I said that, but it's been at least a decade. And so it's very interesting to me that the argument is against something that we don't even argue in favor of. Um, so that's kind of interesting to me. What also is interesting to me is that I thought about this for a while, and I thought the number of women who, who choose to breastfeed in the United States and probably similarly in Canada is, is pretty high. You know, we're talking in the, you know, 80 85%, and yet the numbers who match their own personal goal, whether that's six months, whether that's a year, whether it's six months exclusive, whether it's two years, whatever it is, is quite low because of all the things Edith and I talked about earlier. So what we have now are several generations, not of simply parents who have been breastfed, but parents who didn't succeed with their own goals. They didn't meet their own goals. And yet they don't really have a framework often for understanding why that happened. And so what they default to is to simply feed their babies in another way. So I think that from a marketing perspective, Fed is Best is really tapping into um, sort of the reality of what happens to a lot of mothers who attempt to breastfeed. And so I think that it's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors in my mind in terms of the language and the terminology. Let me, let me, it's Edith, let me jump in there. I think Jen's made some fabulous points and no question, the breast is best has driven me crazy from the beginning. And I've always, I I created a whole talk on the cruelty of breast is best. Because as I said, we get all these women breastfeeding and then we don't support them to do it. And, and the the crazy thing is we shouldn't even have to, because we should all, and I don't mean shoulds in terms of a right and wrong. There's no right and wrong. There's no morality here. It's just what works. And if we talk about the normative way of feeding, so how we as human beings were meant to be fed. You have to think we, we hit 7 billion strong on this planet and most got here because we were breastfed. However, that doesn't mean that people aren't necessarily going to have challenges and it doesn't mean some women won't choose not to. And for women who choose not to, then we have to support them in that choice. However, for women who do choose to breastfeed, then we've got to make sure that we are going to support and be supportive as a society, but certainly as a medical profession. And all too often when we have medical professionals who come in, and as Jennifer mentioned before, you know, with their own personal experiences, I'm always known for saying an N of one does not a study make. You put your own experiences above the, the, the looking at a whole total population, and we have a problem. So when you have a medical professional who says, oh, you know, I used formula, I'm fine, or, um, oh, yeah, breastfeeding's hard, why don't you do this? Or, no, it's not supposed to be like this, it's supposed to be like that. And the problem is that so many of these statements are not based in any evidence. And when I say evidence, I mean true evidence. So we're talking experiential evidence, clinical evidence, um, empirical evidence. There's all different ways we can gather evidence, and they all have validity. 
so coming back now, what is it that we're, you know, truly, I feel we're failing mothers left and right. And then when you have, by not supporting them, to really get breastfeeding established, we screw up pregnancy, we, we screw up birth for them, and now we're going to come in with all these interventions on breastfeeding. So here's the challenge. When you have an organization that comes out and says, you know, feeding is so no question, nobody wants a baby to go hungry. Nobody on this planet wants that. Absolutely not. But to go in on the premise that, oh, we're going to go with the mindset that, oh, we're set up to fail? Like, why would any of us when we were growing up, start to even imagine that our hands wouldn't work. Now, there are some babies born and their hands don't work. For the most part, however, most people on the planet, their hands are going to work. And nobody starts thinking, hmm, I'm worried as I grow up, my hands won't work. It's rare. Who would think that? Mm. But yet somehow we plant the seed into young women. You know what? When you go to have a baby, your breasts might not work. So we put this whole idea into women's heads that they're going to have a problem, whereas most women with the right support will have no problems. There are very few, and, few, and some we can get over very quickly. So why do we, why do we plant that seed from the beginning? If this, I agree with Jen 100%. This is marketing, 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 and it's brilliant marketing to put up a whole lot of fear-mongering and a whole lot of scary stuff when the majority of babies, the vast majority of babies, are going to be 100% safe and, of course, normal in their development through life when they're breastfed. And many babies who are not are going to suffer ill consequences. However, if we turn that around with the marketing, fed is best works very well in terms of hitting us in the opposite way. Oh, my hands might not work. My breasts might not work. Hmm. And I really think we need to question that right from the beginning. Why do we set women up? And young women, why do we set them up for failure from the beginning? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Uh, it makes me wonder, like, what's the motivation? And I, I know that the founder, I think, had some issues uh, breastfeeding her child and, and that um, her baby was compromised in some way. And I understand that as uh, a mother of a child with special needs, um, there's something inside of you, I think, that, that – um, gets prompted to want to help everybody else to not have the experience that you had, but at the same time, um, it that that kind of good intention can go awry and m- might even harm people at some point. And so, um, for me, oh, how do I say this? Because you know, this allegedly, supposedly stemmed from a mother who was hurt. So I don't want to hurt a mom who's been hurt more, but I also don't want to harm any other uh, moms in the future. And, okay, here's how I say it. (laughs) I'm trying so hard not to be a jerk. Um, Everything that you said is so true, and and it does sound like marketing. if If I didn't know any better, if I didn't know any better, I would say this is the most genius plan to get people to make sure to stock up on formula in case their hands don't work. I mean, their breasts don't work. I, that's such a great, Edith, I love that so much. We None of us have ever, like, been told, like, hey, be careful in the future. You know, like, when you're trying to, I understand that you're trying to use your hands, but they may not work. That is such a beautiful analogy because I was told breastfeeding could be really hard. You might not be able to do it. 
by everybody, by the same people who told me I couldn't have a natural birth, by the same people who told me that I was going to have to need an epidural, by the same people who told me that, oh, yeah, you should just have a C-section. So it's kind of a, it's a fear-based model about something that has been the norm for millennia. So I, I'm asking you all if you understand or if you're following me here, where is this coming from? Where is this giant fear coming from? And it's not just about breastfeeding. It's about normal birth. It's about all the normals, birth, breastfeeding, all the things that are normal have become uh, something that's kind of scary. Where does this come from? Do you do you all have any idea or theories? I, I still oh, have mine. Jennifer, first. do you want to? Yeah, sorry, you comment first. No, no, no. You. I was going to say I have mine, but you, you start, and I'll jump in. Well, I mean, I think that you're right, Gina, in that there's a real correlation right there. And one of the things that I can say, having been in this field for 25 years, is that when we start, when I started in this field, breast birth wasn't as it's, there was a period where birth was not quite as interventive in a normal way. It was when it, when there were interventions, it was still like accepted that it was an intervention. So, for example, if you said to a mother, um, if, if this is language. I'm just going to use this language that was used then. Did you have a natural birth? The mother would say yes, or she had a cesarean, or she had an epidural. And it kind of evolved to where the mother would consider a natural birth, a birth with an epidural, a birth with Pitocin. So medications became normalized. And as we did that with birth, it's kind of a ripple effect to where everything becomes medicalized. And, and one of the things that, hap- that someone said to once when I was running this peer counseling program she said, when you have assisted birth, you will need assisted breastfeeding. Mm. And I think that yeah. that is what I have observed over the last 25 years evolving is that our, as our birth, as assisted birth has become so normal, so entrenched, and babies born of assisted birth who are not physiologically um, always aware and present and able to interact fully with their mothers and, and sort of drive their participation as that has sort of become the norm, breastfeeding kind of becomes the next thing that has to be consistently assisted, consistently supported. And when I look at the evolution, I don't really want to speak for another person, so I can only look at the outside of that as best, obviously. I'm not on the inside. But when I look at it from the outside, it presumes all of that intervention that sets up the potential for failure as an accepted norm. It doesn't question it. So they're not questioning why we have set these mothers and babies up for these challenges. It simply says mothers and babies have these challenges and therefore breastfeeding is a risk. Do you see what I'm saying about where we've come to? This is Edith. Um, Jen, that's brilliant. That whole cascade of interventions, absolutely, that comes from pregnancy through birth and definitely through breastfeeding. It, it, it's just, it's almost so predictable now. We can see it as, as lactation professionals. We just, it, it's so commonplace now. And, and I love how you, how you said that, you know, that becomes the accepted way. So, so yeah, anything that diverges from that, now we're, we're into problems. Let, let me address what you were saying, Gina, about, I think it's the founder, this physician who had this horrible, horrible experience. And I feel for her. I, I read yeah. her story and I'm sick to my stomach and I just want to cry. And, and it makes me so sad that anyone would have 
to experience that with their child and as a parent watching that and the poor, poor baby. And also makes me so angry because what she relied on, and not her fault, what she relied on, thinking she's being a good mom and a physician, but a good mom to follow all the rules that we as a medical society have set out, and of course, listen to what Jen just said about what becomes the norm. So we have set out as the correct way to do things. Well, here's the problem that all of these rules are not, number one, founded in science. Let me take a really quick one. This is one that every single person knows about. If you've been anywhere in the baby realm, you've had a baby, you're about to have a baby, you've read anything anywhere, the first thing you will always hear about feeding, that a baby must be fed 8 to 12 times in 24 hours. Well, I'm about to burst everybody's bubble. There's not a single shred of research to support that statement. I'll tell you where it came from. In 1999, Hornell did a study. It was done in Sweden, a whole bunch of babies, over 500 babies, and looked at how often the babies fed. And these were experienced moms who'd already had babies, and the babies were around four months. They looked at how often they fed, and they came up with an average of how often babies fed. Now, what were the statistics? Babies were fed anywhere from four times in 24 hours up to over 16 times in 24 hours. Okay? So, this and they weren't even nighttime feeds were on top of that, so you could go up to 21 times. So, when they looked at all of that, they averaged out the number of feedings with the number of babies and they just did math. And the math came out to big drum roll here eight to 12 times in 24 hours is what that average of over 564 babies fed. Now, that's an average. It's an average. And so from that, we have almost every single expert, every single book, every single guideline, every single protocol that says babies must be fed eight to 12 times for 24 hours. So how can you blame a mother who follows that protocol? She feeds her baby eight to 12 times in 24 hours. She watches her baby on the rest 20 to 30 minutes each time. Well, this is this. When you, when you, you think, wow. She's done everything correctly, and breastfeeding failed her. <gasps> Breastfeeding's bad. We must stop. Look what it did to her baby. And I cannot <laughs> right. blame a single person for believing or thinking that way. And here's, here's the challenge with that, and that is that babies don't follow the rules. The babies don't read the memo. They didn't read the books. And what we need to teach mothers is not – yeah, it's not to, to follow the rules 8 to 12 times, not to follow and watch clocks and so on, how long baby's on the breast. That's useless. That's meaningless. But instead, we teach a mother how to know the baby is actually consuming milk. So we don't want to get ways in there. If we start wet, test weighing, that's a whole other issue because they're also not evidence-based. And then we're weighing something that's a whole, that's a whole other story right there. I can give you a whole, that's a whole long one. But instead, if we teach mothers how to know when a baby's actually literally taken milk in their mouth and they swallowed it, and if we can show her, oh, right now your baby's drinking right there, oh, and again there, and again there, and again there, great, fabulous. Uh Uh-oh, your baby's now not drinking, your baby's just sucking and going through the motions, the milk has stopped flowing. 
we probably better do something about that because if we let babies sit there for too long doing that, we could get a sleepy baby who will look like they're feeding but not be feeding. And then we're going to repeat that every three hours because we've got to get in our 8 to 12 times in 24 hours. And so we're going to follow all the rules and then we're going to have a baby who runs into very serious trouble because nobody showed the mother how to know the baby's actually consuming her milk. Simple and should be shown in the first few hours of life, after the first hour and a half they've been left alone, after that, mother should be shown until she knows it inside and out, and then we'll never get into that problem that this poor mother went through. Never. Ah, oh, that's such a big deal. It's the idea is that as a doula, I have to say, it's all about what's normal. My job as a doula for couples is to be like, hey, I'm here to let you know what's normal. When anything gets not normal, I'll let you know. And we don't know what normal is when it comes to breastfeeding anymore. Thank you. That's right. Oh, excuse me. Could I get a cappuccino out with soy? Okay, I'm in a public place to to shoot this because I couldn't get rid of my kids today. It's really hard to find a babysitter for four kids. I just want to let you know. I have four kids and a... um, a child, one of them has Down syndrome. Will you come over today on short notice? No? Okay. Yeah, so it's rough. But what you just said, Edith, is genius in everything because, oh, my goodness. If you don't know what normal is, then everything is terrifying as a brand-new mom because your job is just, like, keep the kid alive, keep the kid alive. I love this child. You're, like, so in love with this baby. Keep the baby alive. <laughs> That's your job. So if you don't know what normal is, then everything is terrifying. Is that wrong or right? Ashley's back. Ashley, would you talk to us? Hey there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'd love to tag on to what Eve just said because I think that obviously the idea of teaching families how to know their baby's drinking, how to feel empowered to know that, yes, this breastfeeding um, situation is going well for me or when it's not going well to know to reach out for support is so important. Um, but part of my bigger concern with the FEDIS best um, movement, I guess you could call it, is what I've been seeing the last six or so months, which is new and different from the prior 10 years. Um, our, our, our moms are already scared and already not listening to themselves. So we, we know that. We know that from the moment you're pregnant, most women are told how to be pregnant, what to eat, what to avoid. Um, they're told how to labor and where to labor and with whom. Um, a lot of our power is taken away from us before we've had our babies. And a lot of our power to listen to ourselves and listen to our intuition and to just look down at our baby and say, hey, what do you need next? Right? Versus, hey, what does the book say you need next? And, and so I think that's something that we've known for a long time. has been happening for a long time. What I'm hearing now, and it's, it, it, I teach prenatal classes, I, I do a lot of, um, a lot of work with, with a huge demographic, not just a privileged demographic who might be able to hire a private consultant. Um, and the message is like, the, sorry, the, the outcome seems to be the same across the board. It's, you know, I know this is hard and I don't trust myself. And now I know that it's actually not that important, right? I'm hearing that. I'm hearing it's not actually that important. That is best. And, you know, as long as my baby's fed and healthy and happy, it doesn't matter if I try to reach my own goals that I had set for myself. Um, I'm hearing that just too much. You know, it's a, it's a hard one to break down because I do feel that these, that the women I'm working with and the families I'm working with, they, they just, it comes back to this idea of power for me, that they've had this power taken away to say, you know what, 
that's a decent slogan. I understand it, but this is what my baby's telling me. Or this is what my breastfeeding relationship is showing me. Um, so as Edith was mentioning, you know, and, and Jennifer mentioned as well, like, you need to be there and support the families and, and have good guidance and good support along their, especially those early days of breastfeeding. But I think we have to start way sooner than those first couple of days. And we have to have a message. Um, we have a, a message, a, a like a solid message to say, hey, you know what? It's important to follow some of the rules. They're there for a reason, but it's also important to not lose sight of what you know and what you already know coming into this as a, a mother or father or however you identify. Um, yeah, so I just, I think that the biggest challenge, and I'll just share a brief story. I had a call the other day of someone who had taken a prenatal class and was excited about breastfeeding um, and then came and said, but, you know, I, I have this, I have happened to have PCOS and she happens to have some gestational diabetes happening and we're just like you know people have basically told me that I won't be able to breastfeed and I don't know that I'm going to know if my baby's doing okay or not so I've already bought a few cases of formula just in case because fed is best and so if it doesn't work out at least I have that in the basement and I just thought you're setting yourself up right you're setting yourself up for the moment something gets challenging to reach for that case of formula instead of reaching to maybe a peer support or an IBCLC or, you know, a, a relationship group or a WIC group in the case um, that could help you through this, right? So already it's breaking down what I would think was already a very thin, um, sort of thin uh, level of support women were reaching out to. Anyway, just, yeah, that's what I'm seeing. And it's, uh, it's great for us to talk about what we can do in that immediate postpartum period, but we have we don't have access all the time, right, to that kind of good, good um, skilled support early on to teach the drinking and to teach what's normal and to say, yeah, you know what, your baby just ate and they're hungry again, and we can we can go ahead and feed the milk even though it hasn't been three hours. Um, it's, it's wonderful to bring that in, but I think if we can get this messaging in there prenatally or even beforehand, um, we might be able to give some of that power back. Well, yeah, I'd like to follow up. I'd like to talk about, I just wanted to talk about what normal is because even Jen, you know, I'm friends with Jennifer Tao. (laughs) I'm friends with Edith Kernerman. Like, I'm friends with you guys. And even when Jack was born, it's like all of the knowledge that you have as a professional, let's say you're privileged enough to be a professional, goes out the window because you're a brand new mom. So, like, you're in a completely different brain wave state. You're in super mama bear mode, everything is hardcore. Absolutely. When you have this brand new baby in front of you and your job is, you know, in your, in your um, hind brain, keep the baby alive, keep the baby alive, right? Because (laughs) the other part of your body is like, I'm so in love with this baby, blah, blah, blah. How do we talk to parents about what to look for as in what's, what's normal? Because, I am, I'm Gina Kirby. I'm your friend, you guys. You guys know me. And, and when I say you guys, I mean the people who are on this call. Y'all know me. And you know what I know. And you know that I know a lot. And here, yet, here I was as a brand new mom, a complete and utter hot mess. I'm at the <laughs> chiropractor's office. She is doing cranial sacral therapy on my baby. I'm crying. I'm a mess. She weighs the baby. The baby weighs less than the last time that we went in and I just had a meltdown. I sat on Mm -hmm. the floor and I cried and cried and cried. And Craig said, look at the baby. Does he look 
like he's not eating? Pinch his skin. Is it not like oxygenating? Like it, he he kind of walked me through um, logic because I was in a place, you know, you know what it's like to be a brand new mom. You are not a logical person. So he was like, why don't you just look at the logic here? Our baby doesn't look like he's emaciated. He's not showing signs of dehydration. He's pooping and peeing normally. Can you get off the ground and stop crying because you're embarrassing me in front of the chiropractor? But the, the, the advice that he gave me, is that good or bad advice? Like, look at the baby. Is that bad well, advice? Well, I mean, I think the problem with that is that you're ba- – we're talking about Jack, right? Yeah, Jack. You're talking about Jack? We have so many issues. Yeah, well, the problem yeah, is that, that right, Jack was Jack was tongue-tied, and the problem is that you really couldn't compare him to your other babies where you didn't have an impediment to milk transfer in the way that – I know with your second baby you had a different issue, but to milk transfer the way that you would with a tongue-tied baby. And so the problem then comes in that we do see, again, social media is such a double-edged sword. It's the, that N of one is how we all have to live our lives and it's how we become our best possible selves, and yet it also then does not translate to the next person. And you see a lot of that on Facebook where a mom comes in, she's concerned, her baby's not gaining, or maybe like you said, that moment in the chiropractor's office, and everybody rushes in to say, well, my baby did that too, my baby did that too, my baby's fine, maybe your baby's just small. And you get a lot of people using their one experience to keep you from necessarily addressing a real problem, which is Jack was tongue-tied, and it really was Mm -hmm. a problem. I'm not saying Jack was starving to death, and you wouldn't have noticed that because you would have, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't a need for a different kind of support there. So in terms of what's normal, we have skewed what's normal a lot, first from the way we, have, we birth, secondly from the way that we do postpartum, which is that mothers are sitting in a hospital room for the most part with like a million people coming and going as opposed to sort of a support system around them of their own family and people who actually know how to feed them and how to care for them and that sort of thing and, you know, constantly waking the mother and all of those things. But you also now have all of these other issues that can come into play that interfere with breastfeeding. Tongue tie is only one of them. The reality is we do have more mothers with insufficient glandular tissue. I don't think it's, it's, it's a healthy thing to, to sort of only say most mothers' breasts will work, most mothers or humans' hands will work, and, that's, and, and I agree with that completely, Edith, but we also, in 25 years, and I, for me, that's how long I've been watching this, are seeing more mothers who actually don't make sufficient milk, and we aren't addressing that. And so every single situation has to be dealt with individually. So I think that that's where, and, and those moms know. I mean, honestly, the, the, one of the most important things that I believe is believe the mother. I always believe mothers, no matter what they say. They may have a little bit off interpretation, like the mother may be saying, I don't feel like my baby's doing well, and everyone's telling her it's fine, and she may then look for a rationale and think about it, and maybe it's a different reason, but she's right. She's still correct. And so I do think that knowing what's normal has become very skewed by all of those interventions and by research. So one of the things that kind of comes back to what Ashley said is that what have we been researching in the last 20 years? We've been researching the milk, the milk, the milk. 
Why do we research the milk? Because we're trying to copy it with formula. That's why we research the milk. And uh-huh. so, so much of that research is based on wanting to make a formula that's better and wanting to use the components of breast milk. A lot of mothers don't know how many patents exist on components in human milk by pharmaceutical companies trying to make drugs to cure all the diseases that are caused by not breastfeeding, like cancer and diabetes and all these other things. So we've been looking at the milk, and what we then if we want to say fed is best, that kind of easily is birthed out of the concept that you're just comparing two milks as opposed right. to you're comparing breastfeeding as an, as, an, as an experience of two human beings, possibly three human beings, you know, the family, experience, that experience versus just two ways to feed milk. And we, we've lost the, the understanding that this is about the experience and relationship. It's about the microbiome. When I lecture, I say breastfeeding is the architect of the microbiome, our relationships, and our airway. You don't grow an airway on a bottle. You grow an airway on a breast. There's so much more to breastfeeding than there is the milk. And once we move away from that false foundation, which is let's compare these two milks, breastfeeding becomes so much more important. Well, can we talk about that for a second? Because I love what you said about that. You're talking about all these studies about the milk, and no one's doing any studies. And this is me talking about this as an ex-Attachment Parenting International freaking board of director person. This bothers me. There's more to this diet than an exchange of nutrients. I'm not just some freaking giant vitamin pump to my child. We we have an experience together. My son comes to me when he falls down and he hurts himself and he wants to nurse or when he's scared in the middle of the night or if he gets cold or just whatever. He's just like, I need to know that there's somebody here next to me. Breastfeeding is a relationship. And they mm-hmm. can't bottle a relationship any more than they can bottle air. So the focus has to be on milk. Now, do I sound like a conspiracy nut, or am I off? Is that a real Anybody. question? <laughs> this is Edith. Yeah, it's a um, real you're, you're, you're not a conspiracy nut, Gina. Um, look, again, I'll go back to... We we didn't end up. We were probably about four billion strong, or maybe three and a half billion before formula came into existence, or really widespread use, maybe around four and a half billion. You know, everyone was breastfed, and sometimes they weren't breastfed by their own mothers. Sometimes they were breastfed by wet nurses. But until we really got into medicalizing breastfeeding, babies were breastfed, and as uh, Jen has pointed out, breastfeeding is so much more than the breast milk. Breast milk itself. It's not just a liquid. It's so much different. It's alive. And so just even try to compare the different milks, well, that's absurd on its own. Just when you scientifically break it down, nobody has come close to copying it. Number one, you have live components in breast milk. We have so many components in breast milk, we don't even understand what, why half of them are there. But we know the human body never expends energy unnecessarily. So they're there for a reason. We're still starting to understand them over time. So to copy 
see it. They're still, I, it, it, they'll never get there. It's an impossibility. But let's go back to the more important issue and that I 100% agree with Jen. It's all about the breastfeeding. And again, the challenge is if we put it the focus on the copying of what breast milk does as just a nutrition issue, then we miss so much of what breastfeeding confers and more importantly, the risks of not breastfeeding. And too often we are focusing all our attention in the wrong spot. So as you say, Gina, I don't think at all that we're you're in a conspiracy realm here. I think instead when we look at the long-term outcomes, you know, I just did a, a course Parenting 101, and I I just introduced it, and and I spend so much time talking about the long-term effects of not being skin-to-skin, of not holding our babies, of not responding to their cries, because what happens is that we do see long-term sequelae, long-term outcomes that happen that are are deleterious. They're bad outcomes, and they're outcomes we wouldn't wish on anybody. Now, does that mean before anybody gets upset, does that mean that any baby who's not breastfed is necessarily going to have antisocial behaviors or necessarily going to be a very dependent child or necessarily going to be anxious and panic-stricken? No, it doesn't mean that. However, I don't know about you, but I like odds when they're in my favor. And and I'll give you a quick little personal thing here, and, and I 100% understand my own experience is just that. It does not represent a whole population. But I think that maybe we can all agree, and I hope I can say this rather humbly without sound, sounding at all arrogant, I, I'm a little bit of an expert when it comes to lactation medicine. I think we can we can sort of agree there. I know a little bit about it. And so, you know, it's fascinating. When it came to me that on my third baby, by now I've already been a nationally known lactation consultant, so on and so forth. I have my third baby, and I have challenges. I have challenges. I have excruciating pain, which most women don't have. I have because my child is tongue-tied. Now, Jen brought up a very good point. We have to look at what's happening very early on in women's bodies and so on that sets baby up for various challenges. My baby came out lip-tied, tongue-tied. We dealt with them right away, but the the tongue-tied became an issue again over and over. And so here was the challenge. If I didn't know what I knew, I bet you I would have looked to other options so fast it wasn't even funny. Of course, human donor milk would have been my first option. And then after that, I would have had to come up with something else if I couldn't get human donor milk. But the problem was that I knew how important it was that I breastfed not just the breast milk, but that I breastfed because I knew how critical it was if he was not breastfed. And so for 17 months, I literally went through every single latch in such horrible, excruciating pain. And here I was at the time, I was at the clinic, I was running the, the, the Newman Clinic, and I, I literally had my baby there. And, and in front of fellow staff, students, I literally just had to grin and bear it because I didn't want anybody to realize what I was going through and how horrible it was for me because I didn't want to make breastfeeding look bad. But really, what it was, and I didn't know this, it really just was the tongue tie. Because the second we finally got it done at 17 months, Larry Cotlow did a laser revision. The next feeding, I had no pain. Now, 17 months of going through that challenge, but I knew it was worth it. It was all for everything, for him 
and for me and the relationship it created and the kind of child it was building and that I knew there was nothing I was going to do to damage that and take that away. It was too important. And I go back, Ashley, you said it beautifully. When we, when we start taking away from what parents, the importance of what it's all about, we, we've stressed for so many years this whole stupid breast is best, but instead of talking about, as Jen said, breast is norm, the challenge is now people are coming, well, maybe it's not best. Maybe maybe we can come up with something that's just as good. Maybe, you know, instead of if we had established all from the beginning and continued breast is norm, we wouldn't be having this conversation because everybody would realize, okay, if you have a challenge, we'll find a solution instead of coming in and saying, no, we'll stop. I- I've said it before and I'll end with this. I've said it so many times. Yes, breastfeeding is natural and it's a learned behavior. And just as a child who goes to walk, they will fall down and then they'll get back up. But if the first time they fell down, we offer them crutches and we say, okay, you gave it a shot. That's it. You know what? I don't want you to ah. suffer anymore. You've gone through so much. I don't want you to have pain. You know it's too bad. All I want you to do is be happy here. Here's a set of crutches. It's okay. That's okay. That, wow. That would be ridiculous. And yet that's what we do with breastfeeding. Here are the crutches. Here. Ah. Go. It's okay. I want you to be happy. Oh, that's big. Ashley or Jen? This is Jen. One of the things that, that, that came out of that work I did Jen. again back in, in the – can you hear me? I just want to make sure you saw my, my – yeah, I just want to make sure you saw my text really quick about the two-minute thing. Yep. Or oh. four-minute thing. No, I didn't. Let's make it four minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I saw that. Okay. So one of the things that came out of my um, my work back with, with the peer counseling program was I really wanted to understand what – it was that helped a mother succeed even with really difficult breastfeeding challenges. And sort of an offshoot to what Edith just said, I found that it really needed to be a part of her identity and the way she saw herself as a mother. And what I found is that the language that we've evolved around breastfeeding, that I'm going to give it a try, is really very similar to what Edith is saying about the crutches. So I would say to my clients, if you try to breastfeed, you will have succeeded at trying to breastfeed. And that's really kind of where we are. Breastfeeding has become so unimportant culturally, Mm -hmm. even when it's important to a mother personally, that we just sort of think it's okay, well, you tried. But for that, that mother or that parent, that might not be sufficient. That might not be good enough. And yet all around she's being told, it's okay, it's not that important. The pediatrician says, well, I didn't breastfeed, it's okay. But the nurses in the hospital will say, sometimes, you know, for some mothers it's just not for them. All of these kinds of cultural ideas that are false because there is no one for whom breastfeeding is not from a physiological perspective. Now, I'm not talking about other issues that might come into play, but you can't ever look at a dyad and say, oh, it might not be for you. Where does that come from? So we have, this, we have this whole cultural idea around breastfeeding that presumes, as Edith said earlier, as Gina said earlier, that kind of presumes failure or that yep. presumes that an attempt is good enough 
it's only good enough if the mother thinks it's good enough. It's not good enough because everyone else around doesn't know what to do, doesn't know how to help, doesn't know where to direct. That doesn't make it good enough. That means you either get up to speed with how to help or you support that parent in getting help that they need. But the idea that it's, you know, it's okay as, as if the two are equal, and that's really where we've come to. You know, there's a lot of backlash that says, you know, breastfeeding has been overblown. I would argue that breastfeeding is so undersold in our yep. culture. It is certainly not overblown. And that, you know, it's okay to have tried and not succeeded. And, again, that's only okay if it's okay with that parent. It's not okay because everyone else thinks it's okay. So we've created a right. culture in which everyone else's opinion that it's okay is kind of the prevailing wind. So whatever that parent wants becomes less significant than what that prevailing concept is. So we don't really bring in real support, you know, that really encourage that mother to keep going, that really identify what the issues are, that really, you know, um, support milk supply or support her nutrition or support um, – you know, her need to have a, a supportive family around her. And, you know, what Edith said earlier, breastfeeding is both natural and learned. Both of those things are true, but breastfeeding is also something that happens within the context of a community. It's not just that babies might have been fed by a wet nurse. It's that babies might have had someone to hold them while mom went to pee. I mean, we have yep. a culture that assumes the mother's going to sit home alone and nurse her baby yeah, all right. by herself, or she's going to go to work at six weeks or whatever ridiculous period of time that is, depending on which Western country that doesn't believe in mothering that you live in, and she's going to pump for all those months, and then she's going to pay for daycare, and she's going to, like, there's no real support for breastfeeding as a, as a, as a primary important um, relationship between that, in, you know, and that family. So I think that's part of the issue as well. Please. Just as a a fresh mom, it's only been three years, but it feels like yesterday. And I will say that when I was going through this hell, and it was hell with Jack, it it was painful, it was awful, it hurt. I was uh, a mess because, you know, as an ex-board member of attachment parenting, I put all this crap on myself. As a person who had a radio show that promoted breastfeeding, I put all this pressure on myself, right? You know, I was beating my my own self up left and right. And here I was with this child that had the most severe tongue tie. I, I mean, it was like planted on the bottom of his mouth. He couldn't even move his tongue up a little. And and we went and had the procedure done that I didn't want to do, but we did it. And I did all the horrible exercises that made him scream and cry, and I did all these awful things uh, in order to breastfeed because I knew it was the best. But here I was, a real-life person, not just an advocate, not just a person on the radio, not just a person that people kind of think they know about. I'm a real-life person that had sore breasts, sore nipples, <laughs> bleeding nipples. I was crying. I was miserable, and I wanted to make it through it. And so I made the mistake of posting my experience on Facebook. And here's what I got. I got a lot of people saying, oh, you poor dear. I got a lot of people saying, you should just keep at it no matter what. And a lot of people saying, you know, if you give up, it's okay. 
And there's no in-between. There was no, like, answer that felt right to me. All I wanted to hear was somebody saying, oh, this sounds really hard. Are you having a hard time? What are you doing for you? No one said anything like that to me. Everyone had an opinion about what I should do. And nobody thought about me, the person. Gina Kirby, the mom, who was having a really hard time. Nobody was saying, hey, how are you doing? Are you eating right? Well, that's not true. Jennifer Chow was saying that to me. Um, But mostly everybody else was like, if you want to give up, it's okay. But you should keep going. Like all of these conflicting things back and forth on Facebook, it just made me get off of Facebook for five weeks, thank God, and um, we got ourselves together. But what do we say about that? Can we end talking about this, about... Um, the advice that we get. Could we stop giving advice to moms and start giving them support? Can we start asking them, do you need help with groceries? Can I bring you something to eat that's healthy for you? Can I? Can we talk about that? Because that, that blew me up and messed me up the most when I had Jack. And here I was, a really, like, super educated mom. What can we do for moms that don't have the education that I have, that don't have the circle of, quote, unquote, support that I have? What can we do for them? Did I lose you all? <laughs> I feel like it's Edith. I feel like I've talked too much. Ashley, are you there? Because you're. Yeah, okay. I, I, it's Ashley. Hello. I was, I, as you were saying that, I, I, it took me a moment to just sort of process my own story for a second. So I didn't bring too much in um, because I can remember, Gina, all the things that you're saying. I can remember being a very, my, my son's 12, but he's, you know, it's been a little while since he was a little baby. But um, I knew I was going to have the birth experience I wanted and I knew I was going to breastfeed. And I'm uh, personally a type 1 diabetic. And so, at the time, it was especially important for me to do whatever I could to help prevent the potential of type 1 diabetes and other, other risks um, for my children. So I was hell-bent to breastfeed. It was just going to work. And, uh, you know, I look back at that time when he was born and how it didn't work. Um, for a while, he was probably almost eight weeks old before he ever latched on. Um, and so I can really think about those those months of of trying to feed him and pumping and getting breastfeeding support and having five minutes from the end of one feed to the beginning of the next because of all of the advice and interventions I was given. And uh, this is where I'm going to give a big shout out to Edith because I remember (laughs) coming into the Newman Clinic with my son at like five or six weeks of age and just being like, oh, help me. Like, what, what can I do here? And if it wasn't for, first of all, I had a ton of family support. My mother practically moved in with me. My husband took of work. I had friends come over and cook for me. I, and even with all of that, I felt like I was driving myself into the ground. It was, it was very challenging. Um, and I don't know if you remember, Edith, but one of the first things you did is you put your hand on my shoulder and you said, how are you? <laughs> and just that, you know, I out of all the advice and all of the tools and all the interventions, I think you were the first person to just say, how are you? Are you okay? This is really hard and you're doing it. You know, like it was, it wasn't necessarily the clinical stuff that kept me going. It was knowing that someone actually saw me, you know, and saw what was that, what I was going through. And at that 
point, I think my confidence shifted and I was like, dude, I was kind of my baby. I'm like, we're going to do this, you know, and with really good clinical skill help, uh, we got them lasting. But I look back over those two months and Gina, I totally get it. I feel very privileged that I had that kind of support and now as a professional and working in not just breastfeeding, I work with, I sit on Natasha and Parenting Canada's board and I run parenting drop-ins and breastfeeding drop-ins and baby-wearing drop-ins. And I'm, I'm trying to create a community for families in our area to be able to rely on each other and to meet other moms. We talk about, you know, babysitting circles and we talk about meal exchanges and we talk about ways that we can create a little bit of a community um, since it doesn't exist on its own. Um, and I'm seeing these wonderful things happen. I'm seeing those new moms getting food delivered to them. And I'm seeing, you know, them come to our groups, even though it's hard to get out of the house, just to sit and feel normal for an hour. You know, just to sit around other people who can make them feel, um, who can make them feel like what they're going through is hard and challenging and they will get through it and they will find their own solutions and they will feel empowered to keep going. Um, but I think there's a real opportunity to create this community and to create spaces and not just spaces, but actual infrastructure between new moms who want to jump in and help other moms because they feel like they had helped themselves. Um, so that's, that, and that's my piece. Is that, that, and that was definitely born out of me feeling like just incredibly to, to, to do the things I was able to do to get breastfeeding working that I know if I didn't have all that, well, I, I don't know because it didn't happen, but I assume if I didn't have all that support, I, I don't know how far I would have gotten I don't know how, you know how much of that story would have been the same. Um, so I just think there's a big opportunity for moms even to get together and create these communities that are not just online. You know, the online world's great, but it's that in-person sitting beside you, spending time while you're sitting there in the trenches support that, uh, that's going to make a big change for, for families who are struggling with some early breastfeeding challenges. Um, and especially, I think, as you know, I heard Jennifer say, there are other issues like tongue tie and, and other, other concerns that are making normal look different or are making us unsure of, is this normal? Is it the baby? Do we trust the baby? Do we just look at the baby or do we just trust the mother? And I think it's a bit of both. I think we, we have to empower families to follow their instinct to say, hey, you know what? Something's not right. It's great that 50 people online told me that. Well, that happened to my baby too. But if that mom still feels like something isn't right, she's going to go to whatever healthcare provider is available to her. And one of the things I, right. I you know, hear myself saying to, to families I'm working with often is, well, if the answer is more milk, there are ways to discover, explore how that can be your own milk or how that can be breast milk, how we can make it breastfeeding as the solution. And I think that's where, as an education piece, you know, I think the frontline healthcare providers like our doctors um, are very quick to say, oh, it's not working, let's formula feed, where they could be saying, hey, it's not working out, let's fix the breastfeeding, right? Let's, let's refer and let's, let's make sure that families are getting the support they need first before there's, you know, switching feeding methods altogether. Let me, let me so ask think- you guys a question before our time is up. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, because oh, no, we were talking about that is best. This is Gina. Um, there's a that is best. Uh, memes that I brought up that says both are equally important choices that parents can make to nourish their babies. In addition, there are multiple ways to feed babies using human milk or formula. Formula feeding, breastfeeding, bottle feeding, 
tube feeding and combo feeding are all best options for how families meet their baby's feeding needs. Do any of us disagree with that? It's Edith, strongly. Yeah. Okay, well, talk uh, to me. Well, the the challenge is, again, as Jen pointed out before, what, what we are normalizing as normal and equal is it's, we're – it's not even close. There's not. We're comparing apples to oranges. We're not. We're comparing apples to celery or apples to to, to grains. Like it's just there's just such a difference here. And there's no question for women who, for whatever reason, are choosing not to breastfeed or their babies have are not breastfeeding. Then absolutely, you want to come up with the safest possible options that are not going to uh, be as detrimental on their palate, on their airway development over time, not as detrimental on their gut, and Jen can speak to that, not as detrimental in every way, and you want to do it skin to skin and as close to mother as humanly possible in all those ways. And I get it. You know, there are going to be people who, for whatever reason, are not breastfeeding. Let's just not compare. It's kind of like saying, well, we have vaginal delivery and we have C-section. So, yeah, there are some women who opt for C-section for whatever reason, and sometimes it's their doctors who are pushing them into C-section and the women don't want to at all. Um, There are babies who are going to be born by C-section. My baby was an emergency C-section. You would never have thought that I would have had a a C-section, and I did. Would I ever have opted for one? No way. Um, But let's not compare them. They're two totally different things. One is a surgical procedure to save a life, and the other is, is is something that is is literally physiologically normal. So it, it's two different things. So I, I I don't think we should be comparing. I think when we go down that route, we run into the problems of having to give comparisons. They're not in the same ballpark. Well, what about this? So there's a. Um, I'm trying to show everybody what this looks like. Hold on. It's a it's a. Um, a meme of a baby who's crying, and it says, are you starving your breastfed baby? Beyond the first few days, an infant should never lose weight. Weight loss means a baby is cannibalizing his own body to fuel vital organs. (laughs) Take the baby to a pediatrician, not a lactation consultant, Letting your baby suffer painful hunger and thirst to promote breastfeeding is cruel and dangerous. Fed is best. Now, mind you, that is not best. The bottom of this meme says the skeptical OB, but that's another thing. So are are we starving our baby? Are they cannibalizing themselves? Should we just go to a pediatrician and skip the... Lactation consultant, who wants to talk to this? Quick, because we have like five more minutes. Um, I can talk about it, Jen. Anyway. Um, so, um, <laughs> except five minutes, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, again, going back to having worked in 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 marketing and advertising, somebody's somebody's. Yeah, somebody's definitely tapping into that concept. You know, how can we instill fear? We're, we are a very fear-based culture. We've really been taught not to trust our bodies. We've been taught only to trust the expert, and that expert better only be a medical doctor in general. Anybody else is really not a legitimate expert. 
I mean, it's sort of the this in terms of healthcare. So there's this whole concept of of um, hurting people towards formula feeding. I mean, that's what that meme is for me. It's like, how can we herd every possible parent towards formula feeding? Because as you said earlier, um, you know, we have pediatricians in this country and, and in the rest of the world who are ardently pro-breastfeeding, who are ardently working to normalize breastfeeding within their own profession and within, you know, the um, sort of the cultural, you know, paradigm. But it's not the norm. It is not what most pediatricians do, or it's not how they're trained. And so when you have a breastfeeding problem, the most logical thing to do is to see an expert in breastfeeding. And the expert in breastfeeding is the IBCLC. And so the idea that you're going to intentionally direct people away from the expert in breastfeeding is saying, we really don't want you to breastfeed. We really don't want that to happen because there is not a single IBCLC on this planet who would ever want a baby to starve and who would never. not support right? a baby. It never, never, ever, ever. I mean, it's hard for us when we have to be the ones to break out the formula, but we will certainly do it. But the, the issue is that what, there's really an attempt here to, to, to sort of demonize anything that isn't an immediate switch to formula because these babies are cannibalizing themselves. I mean, we certainly know there's plenty of research that demonstrates that a lot of these highly medicalized births, these babies are carrying extra fluid, and that fluid is going to be lost, in, and it needs to be lost. The other mm -hmm. thing is breast, breast milk is ketogenic. We go from living within the womb to where we're feeding on glucose to where we actually, breast milk is ketogenic. It is not based in a, a glucose um, metabolism. And so, so um, what we want is a period of keto adaptation between the womb and full-term breastfeeding, and that's what colostrum is. So when you take out that keto adaptive period, you are hugely interfering with normal physiology. Mm -hmm. And we have no idea what the consequences of that are. The idea that we're meant to override our physiology and feed babies huge quantities of food. And I want to address this because one of the things that Fed is Best argues is that throughout the world, people give their babies prelactial feeds. And yet we know that in no other mammal gives its baby prelactial feeds. This is cultural. This is not mm -hmm. biological to give prelactial right. feeds. So to rely on a cultural uh, uh, intervention that is misdirected, again, to argue that that is the norm is really smoke and mirrors. It's really disturbing to me oh. how much smoke and mirrors are involved in this, pro in this, in this kind of well, meme communication from others. Ah, Jen, I'm so glad I had you on the show. Just let's get back to that in a second. I want to make sure that we uh, let our caller, the, the one gal who had the courage to call in today. Hi, caller, you're live on the air. Where are you calling from? New York City. Excellent. Uh, what is your question or comment today? You can give us your name if you like, and if you don't want to, that's okay. Sure. Hi, Gina. Hi, panel. My name is Lene. I'm a new doula, um, definitely have been following Gina, have been following many lactation consultants, and definitely have been following the Fed is Best movement. Um, I have seen from moms that, uh, as Ashley said earlier, uh, they'll say baby, as long as baby is happy and healthy, that's fine with me. I do know the benefits of breastfeeding, and as was mentioned earlier, that a lot of 
people don't really look at the dyad of breastfeeding. So my question to you ladies is for a new doula such as myself coming into the fed is best, breast is best movement, what advice would you give to me so that I can better help the moms, help families, especially in terms of support, giving them the right information and still supporting their decisions um, despite knowing what would be more beneficial and what's more normal in terms of breastfeeding. You know, if I could, Gina, it's Edith, if I could speak to that. And uh, yeah, go ahead. hey, Lene, um, really welcome, uh, really nice to have you on, and, and I commend you for going into the amazing field of doulahood. Uh, we need so many great doulas. Mothers need that uh, fabulous support, and I really commend you for wanting to get yourself educated and seek information. Um, so I, I want to I just mention to you a couple of things that I would hope you'll look out to. One, one of the most important things, and I know Gina's going to have me do some show on this, but one of the most important things that I think for any healthcare provider is to know when things are out of their scope, so when to know when to refer. So that's the biggest thing, to never feel like we know everything, but we'll refer. The second thing is I think if, if you maybe take a listen to our talks today, we've all come back to talking about breastfeeding as physiologically normal. Okay, so it's the normative way of feeding. And I don't think there's a person on the planet who could argue that, just that babies were meant to be birthed vaginally. We do have other ways, but that's how they were meant. Our bodies were built that way. Babies were meant to feed through the breast. Okay? Now, we do have other ways babies can feed, but that, we're just talking about physiologically normal. Okay? So I'm not talking about a right or wrong or a judgment or society accepting one way or the other. I'm just talking about that. So the language that we use around that, I think will reflect how we think about that. And so what I'm going to suggest is that we adapt the language a little bit so maybe it's going to adjust your thinking a bit. And I think that will be helpful for you and the moms that you work with so that when you talk a little bit about you know, breastfeeding, I, I wouldn't necessarily say the benefits to breastfeeding because there actually are no benefits to breastfeeding. Shock, shock, shock. <laughs> there, aren't. there are none. So it, when we take breastfeeding as the standard, because it's the norm, and again, I'm not talking judgmental. There's no right or wrong here. I'm talking about what is normative, okay? And you as, as a semi-medical per, uh, person w would understand that. It's normative. So we're not saying breastfeeding is better. We're not seeing the benefits of breastfeeding. Breastfeeding just is, as Jen said before, breastfeeding is. And then we have to look at the risks of not breastfeeding or the challenges we might face by not breastfeeding and so on. And not, again, not to make anybody wrong, because some women wanted very much to breastfeed. And for whatever reason, we failed them as the society and the medical profession. So we want to then talk about, okay, it would be great to start for you, I think, to understand what are the negatives to not breastfeeding? What are the risks to not breastfeeding? What are the challenges to not breastfeeding? So I think that would be a really good place to start, knowing where to refer, when to refer, and knowing what the risks are of not breastfeeding without being judgmental in any way. And then the next thing is to realize that you are there as a fabulous support person, and that's awesome. And to listen to what Gina and Jen and Ashley were saying about how they just want to sometimes hear, hey, I'm here for you. I, I, I want to know how you're doing, as opposed to coming in and giving advice. 
that that mother might actually have been bombarded with. And lastly, where you get your information from, I'd be very, very careful because the human brain fills to capacity very quickly in this day and age. And though we are always expanding our minds, the more we fill it with stuff that actually is not good stuff, the more we literally create neural pathways that are going to remember that stuff. Surround yourself with people with whom you can literally learn from and not be bombarded with falsehoods or exaggerations or overdramatic or um, fear-mongering, but instead surround yourself with intelligence, with knowledge, and people who truly, truly want to make a difference in life. That's my advice to you, and I hope that's okay that I gave you some advice there. Thank you. Thank You're you, welcome. and thank you for calling in. Keep listening because there's going to be some more about that stuff here. Um, oh, my gosh. So I, This is the last thing I'm going to leave on, and you guys can watch this later because um, I'm doing a, a Facebook Live. I can't believe I'm doing it because I'm trying to do like 12 things at once by myself, but as a mom, I'm used to it. So there's a video, uh, a picture here of what looks like a, a starving baby. Starvation from exclusive breastfeeding is our modern-day tragedy. This is a picture of a baby who looks very hungry, uh, and it says starvation from exclusive breastfeeding is our modern-day tragedy, www.fedisbest.org. As a brand-new mom, this would scare the crap out of me. I would be like, why would I breastfeed when I could give myself something, to my, give my, my baby something? That would keep him from looking like a starving baby. And this is this is terrifying to me as a mom, and I'm I'm a mom advocate and have been for 12 years. So, what do we say to this? What do we say this to moms done. to see this image? Yeah, Jen, please go for it. What well, what they've done is they've they. It's so interesting. I mean, just I'm fascinated by this process. Um, what they've done is they've completely eradicated the risks of artificial feeding in any way. It's because, I mean, all of their language is that this is your savior, this is your rescuer, this is your, your certainty, this is your rock. And how many babies I see in my practice, because I specialize in gut health and healing, and how many babies I see in my practice, you know, three, four, five months in, who've been told by the GI doc or the P to give their baby formula, and these kids are reacting so badly. And mom mm-hmm. is trying to get her milk supply back up and to heal this baby. You know, the, the sort of, but we've normalized, we have normalized poor health in our culture. As Michelle Chatham said, if the kid's got a pulse, it's all good. It's not all good. We should have right. robust, vital, healthy children. But we have normalized eczema, we've normalized asthma, we've normalized allergies, we've normalized all of this. And so it's okay if kids grow up with all of this because, well, I guess they're alive. I mean, is that really what a parent wants? I know it isn't. I just know it isn't. And it's feeding on a fear that it's, no. That's a low bar. My kids are fine or I grew up The bar is right on the floor. We're just not even, yeah, we're just not even tripping on that bar. It's right there on the floor. It's so low. And so that's where we are. And if the bar is that low, then anything goes. 
You know, I mean, if we want kids, look at the number of kids who can't breathe, who are snoring, who have no airways, who have ADHD, who, I mean, this is part of, you know, I teach on this all the time. It's like, where are we going in terms of human health? We are, the, we are giving birth to the first generation whose life expectancy is shorter than their parents. That ought to right. be a major wake-up call. And yet it doesn't seem to be because we can feed the fear, feed the fear, feed the fear. It's got to stop no, I'm glad you said that because that's the thing nobody understands. No, please go ahead, Edith. No, that wasn't me. Oh, I thought it was Edith. <laughs> it was Finish Ashley. I'm sorry. I, I was just quickly just going to say. Oh, Ashley, like, go ahead, to, please. Look, just to everything that Jen just said, and, and that is the response when you say anything that might counter the idea of fed is best is, well, isn't a fed baby better than a dead baby. That's what I'm hearing everywhere. And of, of course it is, right? Of course it is. Like just, just the fact that that's the response is kind of angering because nobody ever anywhere has said otherwise. But the idea well, that Well, because that presumes those are your only two options and they're not. Yeah. Except, well, that's it, right? And that's the thing about best. Uh, information is better is best. Dead? Voice is best. But, but fed nice? isn't best. Fed is Fed is acceptable. It is necessary. Fed is normal. We want to keep our babies going. Of course we do. But it's how the baby's fed does matter, and it does make a difference. And that's the part that's getting lost with this message. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> that, that's the thing is that um, I think fed is best. It's kind of like it, it, it would be like if it was a bumper sticker, it would say, do you want a dead baby? And the answer is no. <laughs> I don't want a dead baby. What the hell wants a dead baby? Um, but it's kind of like going to the lowest denominator of things. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, it it just it. I get where it's coming from, but it's not about thriving. It's about surviving. And I want to set the bar higher. I really want yeah. to stop talking about I was I was uh, formula fed and I survived. I hey. I was formula fed and now I'm a breastfeeding advocate. <laughs> Does formula make, uh, you know, lactation uh, advocates? Maybe it does. You know, like, ne- you know, tune in next time on conspiracy theory. But my whole thing is that I was formula fed and I'm fine, but I don't, I want to set the bar higher for my children. I don't want my children to be fine. I want my children to thrive. I want them to have the best that they can get. And if it means me, you know, breastfeeding when it's not convenient and when it hurts and when it's hard, I'll do it. But I don't, I'm not a martyr. I'm just a mom, right? Like every single mom who's listening to the show right now would run into a burning building to save their children. So why would we lower the bar <laughs> when it comes to doing the best that we can? Can we just at least raise the bar to... I will listen to new information, and I will use it to the best that I can for my own family. The end. Like, nobody's asking you to be a super mom. Nobody's asking you to breastfeed because it hurts. We're just asking you to listen to the information that's best for you and your family and take it with a grain of salt and the end. Can we all be in agreement on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can I I make one? That's the hard thing, right? Go ahead, please. Can I just make one quick second, uh, quick quest, uh, statement based on, you know, what Jennifer said, that, you know, we're not talking about the risks of not breastfeeding in a big enough way. And 
you know, I remember, and I just looked it up right now, in 2012, I had some students work on a chart, or one student worked on a chart, um, Francis Chada worked on, and then Tristan Corrali and I updated in 2014. I, it was published somewhere, but I, I don't even remember where. And it was looking at the, the all the research that was done where it shows where either you have a risk, like how does breastfeeding, like how does it move the baby forward from a negative, and then looking at the baby babies who were not breastfed and what's the risk and whether there was a dose response. And this was in 2014, so three years have gone by and we've had a whole lot more research since. But if you look at all the risks, I came down and these were only completely evidence-based resources that they were allowed to use. Nothing that's just, you know, a, a Google blog or anything like that. No. This had to be proper research that was very well done. And we came up to 102 references that just looked at the risks of, breastfeed, of not breastfeeding. And some were the risks of formula feeding and some were the risks of not breastfeeding. 102 and that was three years ago. Why, as Jen says, why are we not talking more about that? We certainly talk about the risks of not wearing our seatbelt. We talk about the risks of kids not wearing helmets when they're bike riding. We talk about the risks of smoking. Women have the right, families have the right to hear the information. It's not not what, Gina? It's so uncommon that uh, and I'm interrupting you because what's we're uncommon? Almost at the end of the show, the um, education, like in the last 12 uh. years, people know that smoking is bad for you. End of story. Like if you go up to like a teenager and you ask them, "Do you think smoking is bad for you?" They'll be like, "Yeah, everybody knows that," but not everybody mm-hmm. knows the um, what happens if you don't breastfeed your baby. Right. It is yeah. not common knowledge. We have to remember, because we have to step back, you and I, as people who are in the breastfeeding world, <laughs> because we know we know what's out there. The common mother, the common person on the street, the common 14, 15-year-old, or soon-to-be mother, 19-year-old, or 14-year-old, do not know the risks of not breastfeeding. It is not common. And now we have no. people like the skeptical OB putting out, a book, not not articles, not blogs, a book about how BS breastfeeding it. We have uh, what what is uh, not fake news, fake news yeah. about breastfeeding. How yeah. are parents supposed to know what's real and what's not real? When are breastfeeding consultants or or IBCLCs? When are y'all going to come out and get super real and super in the face of the people who are talking out against you? Because, and, and please forgive me, but there are more people talking out against teams are talking for breastfeeding. And I know the problem is, is that there's no money in people breastfeeding. Like, who get, who's going to make money if everybody's breastfeeding? But, but where is that? Where, where are y'all in the fight against misinformation? How are we going to fight this? What are we going to do? And I'm asking as a consumer, not as, not as your colleague, because I am also – but I'm just freshly a mom who came off of this horrible roller coaster of breastfeeding who would have, I don't want to say failed, but would have gone a different route had I not known what I know and had I right. not have the friends that I had or the privilege or the information, blah, 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 blah. What do we do? I know this is a, this is a tough question, but this is a tough, you know, subject. Anybody, anyone? <laughs> It's, it's Ashley, and I'll say that's an excellent question. 
finding a platform that speaks to more than the one person who chooses to invite you into their space is hard, right? Finding those those ways to speak to masses and speak to women before they're even pregnant, never mind just prenatally. It, it is hard, and I know some of us, like I'm working with a few of the local high schools to get in and talk to their health classes, um, and I know other LCs are doing the same thing. Like there are, but but you know we do have to give our time as a volunteer um, to to make these efforts, which again I'm I'm quite happy to do. Um, but I think it's a matter of finding those platforms that will give us a voice to not just people who are already on board. And I think that's what does happen a lot is is a lot of the outreach seems to be met by by families who are already on board. They already sort of know what's going on and they want to learn more. Um, so finding our, we, we do, we have to work harder to find ways to access, um, a, a larger population and a more broader demographic. We have to find ways to bring this information out there strongly, um, without a guilt profile, without saying, Hey, you know, you're terrible if you don't do this because none of us feel that way. Um, but also I think addressing the fact that families can, can, we have to stop worrying. The, the guilt piece is what I'm trying to talk about, that the moment you say something against one thing, anybody on the other side feels like you're attacking them. And I think we all have to lose that. We all have to start to encourage families to own the choices they're making and that if we're trying our best and things don't work out, that it's okay, right? It's okay if you found all the help you possibly could find, you've exhausted all your resources, that it's okay to do what you're doing and still hear and and disseminate good information to others right that we don't have to take everybody onto our own path that if something didn't work out for me i don't have to try and make everyone else feel like it shouldn't work out for them either um as as a product of my own guilt as a mother i'm speaking right now not as a professional but as a mother that's a very hard thing to do when when things don't go the way you expect them to as a parent but i think we can see that and if we can help families see that it's okay that you know, people are going to do things differently than us, and it's not a better or worse, that here's what's normal, here's what we're trying to make happen, and when or if that doesn't work out, that we don't have to then make the rest feel like they have to follow our path so we can feel a little bit more normal about it. Um, that, that's a barrier that I find when I'm talking to the groups and trying to, you know, provide this information. Anyone else? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, everybody, for this. Uh, I think we could talk a lot about this. And um, because of that, I'd like to have you back on again. I'd like to make this like a five-part series where parents can learn more about what's happening uh, in a way. And, and I'd like to thank you very much for talking about this in a way that isn't bashing because that's not what I wanted. I, I really want to just disseminate information in a way that parents can uh, take it in and, and we have to remember, too, because we're all birth professionals and we're all lactation professionals, that the first time that you hear these things, it's weird. And so I'd like to, like, um, spoon feed, as it were, <laughs> this kind of information to our listeners. So thank you very much. Thank you for being a part of everything. Ashley, thank you. Ashley Pickett, IBCLC. She's an international board-certified lactation consultant. In private practice, she also works as a part-time staff member at the Newman Breastfeeding Clinic in Toronto. I love you, Ashley. Thank you so much. Edith Kernerman is an international board-certified lactation consultant and clinician in Toronto, Canada. She was the co-founder and president of the International Breastfeeding Center, co-founder and clinic director of the Newman Breastfeeding Clinic, uh, senior faculty at IBC's Center for Breastfeeding Studies. And thank you, Jennifer Tao. You've practiced 
holistic life patient for a long time. Through her clinical experience, diligent research, she specializes in helping diets with compromised gut health function and restrictions through tongue tie. Thank you, ladies. I love you so much for the work that you do and the difference that you're making um, in everything that you do. Uh, I will make sure to introduce you guys better. I know that I'm using old ways to introduce you, but you're all awesome. I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks. For Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please join us next time. And please, oh, I want to make sure that I do not forget this entire episode and everything that you have heard today is in part in thanks to Bebomia. We are proud to announce that Bebomia is one of our sponsors for today's show, and they are offering this community 20% off their breastfeeding education certification inspired by the World Health Organization's 20-hour breastfeeding course. This online certification prepares you for all the questions you will get as a birth and professional consultant. This training is ideal for prenatal and postpartum fitness experts, doulas, childbirth educators, sleep educators, massage therapists, nurses, and anyone else that is working with expecting new parents. Head over to babomia.com forward slash breastfeeding. Use the code GINAFRIENDS, that's G-E-N-A friends, all uppercase, and 20% comes off your total. We're also blessed to have Recessive Cradle as one of our sponsors. The Recessive Cradle is the only resuscitation support board designed for stabilizing the head, neck, and body of a newborn to help ensure an open airway. You guys, oh my gosh, I'm so emotional over this show. I can't even start. I love you so much for being a part of it. Thank you for sharing everything that you can, and I want to share this with you as we go out. Thank you.